You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inside Healthcare, NCQA's podcast. And we welcome you today because we have two great guests with a great topic joining us here to talk about a new resource for improving care for type 2 diabetes and heart failure patients are Dr. Janani Rangswamy. She is the clinical associate professor at Thomas Jefferson University, Philadelphia, and she's the associate chair for the Department of Medicine, Einstein Medical Center in Philly, and she's a nephrologist by trade. Also joining us today is, of course, our Vice President of Performance Measurement, uh, Mary Barton. Dr. Mary Barton is here as well. Welcome, ladies. I'm glad you're here. We've got some exciting things to talk about today. This new resource about improving care for a specific population. And um, I would like to uh, first uh, discuss the, the population because it's a significant one. When I read this report, uh, just how many folks and how much treasure is spent in uh, helping these folks already. And a lot of them aren't even identified, as I understand it, as, as needing care. So let's talk about that group. Why that group? And we'll start with you, Dr. Ringaswamy. Thank you so much, uh, Matt, for that kind introduction. And it's a pleasure to be here as part of this uh, discussion. Uh, you're absolutely right. Diabetes is assuming uh, epidemic proportions, not only in the United States, but worldwide. And then when you club that along with undetected patients and pre-diabetic patients who eventually will go down that trajectory, uh, the burden is much more than what we think it is. Um, you know, currently there are about 34 million Americans living with diabetes, but we know that uh, the disease burden is actually going to be much higher than just that one number. Why this particular population of interest? Because diabetes, um, as we well know within the medical community and uh, you know, patients too, is an independent risk factor for heart disease, for kidney disease, uh, blood vessel disease in general. What is really uh, peculiar about this relationship between diabetes and heart failure is there have been some elegant studies um, showing that when you optimize patients, meaning you bring them under really good control with respect to some of the traditional metrics we use, such as A1C targets, blood pressure control, control of cholesterol, weight management and smoking, and you think you're doing everything correctly from the perspective of an internist or a cardiologist or a nephrologist, a lot of the risk for things like, you know, strokes and heart attacks can really be mitigated. Interestingly, though, there is still an unmet need in heart failure. So you could have a patient that is quote unquote, well optimized and still be at residual increased risk for heart failure. So that's why that combination of diabetes and heart failure, diabetic cardiomyopathy is such a big burden and such a big unmet need. And I think this, this white paper is so timely in helping address some of the barriers to the care of those patients. 
And Dr. Barton, I should mention that uh, the resource we're talking about is a new white paper uh, developed by several experts across the industry uh, for NCQA, and it's named Optimizing Care for Patients with Type 2 Diabetes and Heart Failure. It should be available on our uh, website uh, as we speak. So Dr. Barton, what is NCQA's interest in this? Where do well, we play a role? Yes, I really want to um, echo some of the things that Dr. Ragnaswamy said, because diabetes is a chronic illness. So there are many people who have diabetes for decades. And when we think about heart failure, it tends to be a less, um, uh, you know, something comes on in later life, typically. Uh, and the issue around optimizing care is really about close communication between whoever's managing the blood pressure or rather the, the diabetes and who's managing the heart failure because um, the worst case would be disjointed care where the optimization of one hurts the other, right? That would be terrible. Uh, and then we also have issues around, you know, the cost of the therapies and the, the sort of supports to the patient in getting to visits you would almost ideally, and when we talked about the ideal state in this uh, roundtable, we talked about, you know, ideally you'd like a multi-specialty practice that had a social worker and a, uh, you know, a diabetologist, nephrologist, cardiologist. If you had everything you need. Co-practicing and um, that that would be really, that would be the ideal situation is that once a patient is identified as having symptomatic heart failure, they would benefit from that kind of um, coordinated and, uh, you know, everybody's aware of what the other person's doing kind of uh, service. So that was what we thought about um, when we were imagining what's an ideal situation. And then, you know, then we're stuck with looking at what we have today and what could we do to move from what we have today to that ideal situation? Uh, yeah, we should we we should also explain that the, the sort of impetus of this white paper is that there was a roundtable, and I used the word experts earlier, but all kinds of stakeholders who are involved in the care of of uh, this population of patients, sitting around a roundtable and discussing what is the best way to optimize care. And, um, and it seems to me, it was like a table exercise from what I read and sort of setting out the perfect setting and then for dealing for each of the barriers to ideal care delivery. Uh, Dr. Uh, Rangaswamy, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about the barriers to reaching that ideal uh, care delivery. Um, obviously, not everybody has a nephrologist on staff necessarily at their practice. It's very interesting. Um, you know, when you look at the history of medicine and the science, um, you know, that has developed in terms of modifying the risk of heart and kidney disease and the development of medications and the treatments for diabetes, both these fields have grown exponentially. Interestingly, until very recently, these two were almost kind of going in parallel. They never really met together in the middle. 
And sometimes we even had these contradictory situations where a therapy is pointed out by Dr. Barton for one could actually worsen the other. For example, there was an older class of diabetes medications not commonly used today called the thiazolidine diones. They actually are a risk factor for heart failure. And they were actually quite popular in their time. Interestingly, for the last few years, particularly in the last five to six years, there's been an explosion of some really high quality data on medications that are not just meant to treat diabetes, but also independently reduce the risk for cardiovascular disease, particularly heart failure, a class of medications called the SGLT2 inhibitors, and also reduce the risk of worsening kidney disease and the need for dialysis and even you know heart disease-related death. So the fields are coming together nicely, rather the science is coming together nicely. What is really not coming together nicely implementation of the science. And, you know, there are some barriers that are somewhat peculiar to these health system within the United States, and some I think are global. But the most notable ones are, you know, the, the concept that there is an internist and there is a referral place to multiple specialists that don't operate in a continuum. So one person initiates a medication, the other specialist is not aware of. There is no concrete follow-up plan. There is no concrete separation of ownership of problems. When a patient has 20 different things going on, it is unrealistic that one clinician is going to be the sole manager of every aspect. Um, there are different electronic medical systems. They don't necessarily talk to each other. You know, investigations done in one system don't cross over to another specialist for whom the, the results may be of interest. So that's one major problem, the fragmented care model that we currently practice and exist in. Another problem is what, are, what I call practicing in silos. This is more of a knowledge gap. Physicians are trained to think in a certain way within a specialty and sometimes fail to appreciate the nuances of another's viewpoint that may be very critical to say initiating a therapy, maintaining a therapy, dose changing a therapy, de-prescribing certain agents. And it is that I think is more of a problem on the education side where I think curriculum building in that cardiorenal metabolic space, cross-training across specialists, and understanding the central role of an internist in that care team are really critical in removing that aspect of barrier. And the third barrier, a major barrier that I think is something we struggle with every day, which is uh, the, the pains of actually getting a pill into a patient's mouth through insurance approvals, denials, prior authorizations, um, you know, long justifications for what should be a very simple indication this patient just needs an SGLT2 inhibitor, for example, or um, you know, a high potency statin. So, and finally, I think one of the problems with the way we practice medicine is the relatively less emphasis that is placed on lifestyle intervention uh, stress management, I mean, viewing the patient as a whole, rather than here's a checklist of your medicines. A patient is not the net sum game of their checklist of medicines. We do not have enough uh, resources or time or expertise to address what is a fundamental driver of the problem, obesity, risk, vascular risk factors, uh, several socioeconomic barriers, 
uh, insecurity of it now a pandemic. So that is one of the root causes of the problem. And it is almost absent in the therapeutic plan. So these are, I think, some of the barriers that we you know, face today. I would love to hear Dr. Barton's perspective as an internist um, you know, from, from your end too. Dr. Barton, your thoughts? Yes, thank you. Um, I think that when you imagine the barriers are there between current care and ideal care, you'd have to start with the question of how payment happens in medical treatment. And so the fact that it, you know, really a multi-specialty group would be hard pressed to have multiple clinicians see a patient on the same day, even though that might be the best thing for the patient, because the Medicare payment rules basically disallow, uh, you know, multiple um, payments on the same day. So when you think about the ways that you know a high quality system can take care of these patients you can look to some prepaid entities like kaiser or like you know harvard pilgrim healthcare where you have a staff model hmo that is not constrained by that need to have things happen on separate days and where you can find examples of multi specialty groups also in academic settings we had someone from the panel who was from Johns Hopkins, I remember, who was talking about a, a special um, clinic that existed there at Hopkins that the academic center could um, support, shall we say, you know, so that it didn't have to support itself. So the, um, I think that the, that funding piece is important. And then also you have, um, you know, there are cultural barriers to people um, working together. You know, uh, Dr. Rangaswamy, you mentioned that there, you know, that the medication development went in parallel for a long time. And I think that the training altogether has gone in parallel and been siloed. And so you don't necessarily have um, nephrologists and diabetologists and cardiologists who feel like they're coming at problems from the same angle. And that's really what you need, I think, to work together effectively, is you have to have at least some common vocabulary, some common goals, um, and, you know, complement each other's um, weaknesses and, and ignorance, right? That's the idea that you could, um, you know, get much farther together than any of you could alone. Um, and so I think that the, so the, you know, at the root of it, if you solve the payment, but you didn't solve any of the cultural friction that exists about working together, it would still be hard. Um, and so I think that that's part of why, you know, some of the strategies that the group came up with was really focused on um, taking advantage of education pathways to make sure that people get this kind of multimodal idea in their education. Um, and also to figure out ways to make the patient more at the center of it. And that the, you know, because if the patient were driving all the care, well, of course they would see all their doctors on the same day. Of course their meds would be adequately, you know, paid for by their insurance. 
you know, they would, um, and so that, uh, you know, that's li likely to be something that could help push practice to be more responsive if patients were more insisting on responsive care. It seems to me, uh, Dr. Rangaswamy, that the, the care, if, if you're not in that situation where it's that team working together and you uh, have an endocrinologist and you have a cardiologist and they're not really working on the same points, it seems to me that it behoves both professionals to say these two things are related and you have to handle them together. However, I think that puts the impetus on the patient to communicate back and forth between your doctors. Mm -hmm. Is that, am I on, uh, on spot there in, in terms of, you know, if, you, if your cardiologist changes a medication, you need to know that your, uh, your endocrinologist knows why, when, and how, right? I think so. And unfortunately, it places the burden on the patient right. to advocate for themselves, wherein it should be a system that advocates for outcomes for the patient. A patient's job is to express, you know, what their vision is in terms of their hopes for uh, disease control, treatment, quality of life, um, et cetera, and to communicate that part to their physician team and to be educated about all aspects of their illness, but it's not their job to be the one sole communicating point between a bunch of fragmented, you know, different specialty offices making different changes without talking to each other. Now, we have to admit that that problem is not unique to just cardiometabolic kidney disease, right. it's unique to medicine period, but particularly because patients with cardiorenal disease with diabetes, that notorious trio of heart failure, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease. That's a very complex interface. So in that scenario, there is a higher likelihood of getting these conflicting recommendations mm -hmm. where, you know, one, for example, a heart failure cardiologist wants to raise the dose of a diuretic. A nephrologist may or not agree with that decision. You know, a nephrologist may think an SGLT2 inhibitor would be a great idea. They're not sure how to deprescribe a different agent. So there's some therapeutic inertia and then they don't act upon it and then expect that the next endocrinology visit will address that problem. So uh, you're right. It's an unfortunate uh, problem. Um, it is um, very unreasonable to expect a patient when three physicians cannot agree on what to do the last thing we should be expecting is for the patient to be lifting, you know, their care up and, you know, being the central piece of this problem. Well, we're running, uh, I can't believe it, running short. Uh, podcast time is short. So I want to uh, move quickly on to the result here, the white paper and the strategies this roundtable came up with for improving care delivery. Um, and, and I think the, the prior discussion fits already into this, but uh, improved communication and access to information was one point. And that seems to me, uh, Dr. Barton, that includes all parties, patient, 
all physicians, that sort of thing. But everybody needs to be on the same page, like you said, a, a, a common language. Yes, that's exactly right. The, um, the nature of information flow, and in particular, you know, something NCQA is really concerned with is the, the ease of electronic data flow because information about you know, a patient can be delivered to a patient's um, portal. They could have access to it there, or it could be given to them in a you know, printed after visit summary. But the challenge of getting all the information to all of the relevant players in terms of you know, the social worker, the four specialists, the family medicine doctor or internist, that should really happen electronically. There is no reason today why there has to be a, you know, ever somebody saying, oh, I'm going to check creatinine. The patient says, I just had that done two days ago. Oh, well, I don't see their results, so I'm going to do it again. You know, there's a lot of waste that happens in, in the system, and there's a lot of um, just, uh, you know, ignorance by not knowing what's recently happened. And I think that um, you know, the 21st Century Cares Act, and there's been several um, efforts that the federal government has made uh, recently to try and improve that kind of data flow. But I think that that's really something that um, this will help this clinical problem and should be one of the um, sort of main strategies to improve care delivery is to focus on how to improve that sharing of data and information. How do you, uh, Dr. Rangaswamy, how do you uh, improve? One of the things you have in this uh, list of strategies is enhance and align interorganizational collaborations. So how does, how do we close the gap when you say have an endocrinologist who isn't on the system, who isn't getting the uh, the digital information, Dr. Bar Barton, and the data that Dr. Barton talked about. Um, and perhaps these uh, two physicians, your cardiologist and your endocrinologist are from two different health systems. And I think that creates a problem, obviously, uh, in shared information. Um, how do you make the leap between uh, those two entities or two uh, uh, clinicians? Yes, that problem is not going away any anytime soon because that's just how uh, our health system functions. Uh, one of the things that I have strongly advocated for in a recent uh, scientific statement I led for the American Heart Association on this topic, and I've written other several commentaries, is in this multidisciplinary care model between cardiology, nephrology, endocrinology, and an internist. Um, along with allied support from a dietitian, social worker, and a specialty pharmacist, who they're a very important part of a cardiorenal metabolic team, is to have one designated person that acts as a liaison between all parties. That could be um, a non-clinician. It could be a clinician who is an advanced practice, practice provider. But the point is that the care is so complex that all communication has to be in a central place, which would be this liaison person who is responsible for ensuring that appropriate crosstalk is happening. For example, if a cardiologist started a certain agent and we wanted a follow-up creatinine two weeks later, that would come through a central person. And so I think we lack having that kind of a liaison person in the current models that we practice in. 
and we rely on letters of communication or faxing results over or shooting an email in a system, that's where the problem and the breakdown happens because we all have different health systems and uh, there's no way we can guarantee that everything's going to be bundled up into one health system. So I think having that central person in a functioning cardiorenal metabolic model really helps eliminate that problem. And that is something that can be quickly scaled up if it's shown that these models can actually improve care delivery and outcomes. Uh, that would actually be a relatively easy problem to fix this way. And because we're running out of time, uh, Doc, what do you think that is the, uh, Dr. Rangaswamy, caught me, <laughs> uh, not giving last names, Dr. Rangaswamy, what do you, um, what do you think's most important in this white paper? What point uh, do its readers and folks who want to learn from it, what is the key point they should walk away with? I think the key point they should walk away is that patients have to be equipped with the knowledge that diseases of the heart and the kidney, especially in those with diabetes, have some common themes. They need a common plan. They need effective strategic implementation. There are newer therapies that are not only treatments for diabetes, but they modify the course of complications. Um, and it is in their interest to ask for and almost, I would say, even they have the right to demand comprehensive multidisciplinary care that is not fragmented, uh, where everyone is involved in shared decision-making uh, and those gaps are bridged. Now, it's not gonna be perfect. Implementation strategies always lag behind science by a considerable amount. This is not the first time we're seeing this happen, but it is simply not acceptable in 2021 when we have you know, life-changing and life-saving therapies for them to not interface with a patient just because we don't have a system in place when we have the science in place. Mm. So I think if anything, anyone reading this white paper should go away with the knowledge that this is a gap that can be solved and it is important to bring that into a patient's visit and bring it up with physicians as to what are you doing for my comprehensive cardio-renal metabolic care. So Dr. Barton, I, I wanted to to ask you a couple of things. Number one, you can't do any of the things Dr. Rangaswamy talked about without good, accurate data for decision-making. And it's, it's improving as well, correct? That's right. We, um, we know that patients have good connections with their providers. We need to make sure that their providers have good connections with each other. And you know, a lot of what you were saying before, Dr. Rangaswamy made me think about the work that Barbara Starfield published 20 years ago about the importance of primary care, the importance of having someone who would be the connector for any specialists and all the specialists. Um, and I think that, you know, whether, uh, whether, you know, it might be that things have moved along so far now that it's, you know, might be necessary to put that in the hands of someone who has less training or whose time is less valuable than a primary care physician, but uh, still the, you know, the, the issue of having, you know, the, it's like the historical, you know, fact, you mentioned faxes, you know, um, the idea that you would always CC that primary care team on any consult note, on any request for uh, further testing you know, that should be the, 
the minimum. And if we can make it electronic and make it uh, default so that nobody has to think about it, it just happens, then we would be in a much better situation than we are today, for sure. And that would be maybe one of the, you know, the, the things that's most doable to change about this situation. And so Dr. Rangaswamy, you get the last word on this. And, and what I wanted to ask is, uh, how do we get working clinicians on board? How do you get these folks to realize this is a priority and it will meet your needs and the patient's needs uh, if you uh, support this um, improvement, these strategies to improve your care? I think some of the problem is kind of solving itself, whether clinicians buy into this idea or not, just because of how much explosion of high quality data has happened in the last few years. It is simply in 2021, you know, there are some really important classes of medications and therapies that have been shown to reduce the risk of, you know, heart failure, cardiovascular disease overall, and kidney disease and with such impressive numbers that not implementing those strategies would not be standard of care. So I think the science part has really helped. Uh, the other piece, like I said, is genuine knowledge gaps. And it's not like physicians are trying to be difficult with each other. They're just trained in a standard way that has not been conducive to this kind of cross-disciplinary care. To that end, there is good news because there is high level agreement between important societal organizations that cross training across these specialties is a key step. For example, for cardiologists to do training time in nephrology or nephrologists to spend time understanding the nuances of heart failure. I spent a considerable amount of my time after a nephrology fellowship learning a lot about how heart failure works from heart failure cardiologists. Uh, there are hopefully training pathways that will be incorporated within the next few years into subspecialty fellowships where they spend time in related specialties. Um, it's almost like bringing back internal medicine in a more comprehensive way, but you know, in a specialty sense where the most relevant specialty is what you pick and train in. There's been a lot of advocacy to create a whole specialty called cardiometabolic medicine where cardiologists spend time understanding diabetology or diabetologists specialize only in cardiac and cardiometabolic therapies. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, that's the way we're looking at the future of medicine training, mm -hmm. you know, where our training has to mirror the disease and the needs of a patient and not continue in the siloed uh, tracks that really don't uh, talk to each other. So I think we're going to see that. Uh, the wheels of progress don't always move quickly, but uh, I think this white paper uh, certainly reveals opportunities. And as usual, we have more work to do. So thank you, Dr. Rangeswamy. Thank you, Dr. Barton, for joining us on Inside Healthcare. Very interesting. The white paper is Optimizing Care for Patients with Type 2 Diabetes and Heart Failure. You'll find it on the NCQA website. Just search in the little box up on the right corner and, uh, and you'll find it. Thank you again, guests, for appearing and thank you for listening to Inside Healthcare. I'm Matt Brock. We'll see you again, no doubt.